0: If you've been with us over the last number of weeks, months you could actually say, we're in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in here a while, as you can see kind of the pace that we're taking, but that, that's, that's, that's a good news because we're going to be looking at Jesus for many, many, many weeks, and it doesn't get any better than that. Now, what you'll see today is we're taking a jump from where we left off uh, in our series. Uh, we're, we're not in Luke chapter 6, but we are in Luke chapter 19, which really speaks about what this day is all about. But we've entitled the series, Knowing the Truth About Jesus. We didn't say knowing the facts about Jesus or knowing the stories about Jesus, but knowing the truth about Jesus. And when you think about the truth, there's so many angles you could approach it, it, but fundamentally what it's saying, I I don't want to just know about this person that lived a couple thousand years ago. I want to know if he is who he claimed to be. And of course, he claimed to be the what? The truth. And if he, if he claim to be the truth, is it true that he really is the truth? And how would we know that that is really true—that he is the truth? Uh, I had a conversation with someone yesterday uh, from a Jewish background—not Jewish background, was Jewish—and and, and uh, it was a delightful conversation. And it's a conversation that we can have with anybody of whatever uh, faith or non-faith might be, and we just encounter with conversation. And they'd come to a Passover Seder meal that I was at. at uh, we hosted last uh, Saturday yesterday. And after it was over, she said, I really enjoyed it. It was really great. And said, so there's a difference between uh, what I believe and you believe. You believe the Messiah has come, and I believe the Messiah will come. It hasn't come as yet. And I don't believe that the New Testament really uh, unfolds what really God is going to do. Only the Old Testament. And so uh, I was thinking about that as she was sharing that, and I said, well, I asked her the question, well, how would you know if the Messiah did come? And that's pretty important. Even if we believe whatever portion of the Bible you believe, you have to ask yourself the question, if it, if it happens, how will you know it happens? And her response was kind of like a Miss America contest, uh, there will be world peace, right? And that's what every Miss America, you know, says, what would you like to see happen? World peace, So that really doesn't identify a person, it identifies a result, right? And the result is when whoever comes, comes, and we might not know until the result of it happens that everything that is wrong will be made right and we'll have good times for everybody. Now, I didn't go down that path, which I could have, because there are are many world leaders that have promised peace and they can promise peace with a pretty strong hand. And if you were part of the Roman Empire and Roman, you would have thought i mean i 'm living uh, under the king who has brought peace now he 's brought peace to Romans he didn 't necessarily bring peace to everybody else, but he brought peace that began to spread in so many different ways. So I said, well since you don 't believe the New Testament, let me ask you uh, about the Old Testament. Uh, what does the Old Testament say about how we could recognize whether the Messiah has come and really, that leads us up to this particular day, Palm Sunday, because God gave us some indicators that would say, okay, the Messiah has to come in this way at this time. And so if I can, briefly, I want to... We didn't have a, a chance to go in too much depth, but I did give her a homework assignment, like I gave all of you a homework assignment. You're supposed to do the Passion Bible readings. I said, I want you to read in Daniel chapter 9 and Zechariah chapter 9 this week and say what the Bible says about how you would recognize that the Messiah has come. Now, what she said, which I thought was was, um, I don't know if correct is the right word I want to use, which was um, an interesting statement. She said, well, the problem when people go to the Bible is that it's all up to a person's interpretation. You ever heard that? Well, you interpret the Bible one way and other people interpret the, uh, the Bible the other way, so why, we, why should we spend any time really looking at it? Well, she didn't say that, but he said, everybody can come up with their own conclusions. That's true in one way, but it's not true in another way. There are verses in the Bible that are not open for interpretation because it just states it plainly. Now, there are other parts where there is some reason to say we've got to struggle with what it might really mean. And we're going to see that in the same passage today. But what is clear is an indicator is how could we recognize if the Messiah, the King, the one who appropriately could be sung to as Hosanna, has come. Uh, and I'll just do it as briefly as I can. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, it says that seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Uh, holy city being Jerusalem, uh, which is an interpretation, okay? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. That would not be interpretation. What is the Messiah going to do when he comes? Or oh, we'll see this in a second. Uh, he will deal with sin. Uh, And he will make an atonement. He will do what is necessary for sin to be forgiven. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And that begs the question, did did the Messiah, when he is to come, is he only going to come one time or is he going to come what? Two times. Okay. And, again, that's up for interpretation as well. But in verse 25 says this, so you are to know and discern. So at this point, Daniel writes and says, I want you to understand this. You're supposed to get this. So you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now at that point, whether we understand all the details of it, it's saying it pretty plainly, which is not open to interpretation you will know the Messiah has come because there's, a, there's a, a clock that's running. Now, the clock that runs, it hasn't started yet. In fact, I'm going to tell you when it's going to start. In 62, in seven and 62 weeks, there will be a decree for you to go back to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, in Babylon, when Daniel's writing this, he's in Babylon, so he's in exile. And if you had been there for 70 years and saying, are we ever going to get back to our homeland? Are we ever going to be able to, to live within the holy city? And Daniel says, let, 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 and is ever, the city ever going to be rebuilt? He said, I'm going to tell you when it's going to happen, when, when the city's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be in a period of time where there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, seven and 62 is how many? 69. Now, is that open for interpretation, seven and 62 Added together equals 69. Is that open for interpretation? No. I mean, that's just basic math. You don't, you don't get to interpret 7 plus 62. 2 plus 2 equals 4, and 7 plus 62 equals 69. So in 69 weeks, when the decree to rebuild the city starts, then in 69 weeks, the prince, the Messiah, will come. That's not open for interpretation. That's what's going to happen. Now, what overinterpretation? over-interpretation is, well, what do you mean by 69 weeks? Is it weeks of days or weeks of years? Well, there's, that's a longer story to interpret, but even no matter how you interpret, you've got to interpret it some way. And there's really only two options. It's either 69 weeks of days or 69 weeks of years. Well, it works with 69 weeks of years because the, the decree for Artaxerxes was done in 445 B.C., and if you try to get sixty-nine days in there, you know, or weeks of days, nothing happens. But from four forty-five BC until Palm Sunday, and you make those years. If you had seventy years, if you had seventy years and eat seventy weeks of years, and how many days in a week? Seven. Seven times seven equals what? 490, if it's 7 times 70. I, did, I said 7 times 7, but 7 times 70 is 490. Now, is there any place for interpretation for 7 times 70 equals 490? No. I mean, that's just basic math again. And as you take what Daniel said here, he said, look, in 69 of those, which would be, four, you take 490 minus 7 equals what? 483. You talk that on to 445 B.C., you have the exact year in which Jesus came into Jerusalem As the Messiah proclaimed by all the hosannas. So if Jesus is not the Messiah, you got to come up with somebody else in that year. And some who've done the math, they think and get it down to the exact day that Palm Sunday occurred. Does that make sense? So one reason we would say that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament is that God put a, a a time clock on it that would be marked on a certain day when the decree to go back to rebuild Jerusalem, which was in 445 B.C. by Xerxes, and you count 483 years, until the time of when Jesus came in, it's the exact year in which he came in, proclaimed as the Messiah to the holy city. Well, turn your Bibles or listen as I turn to Zechariah chapter 9. And this is in a familiar part of the of the account of Jesus on Palm Sunday. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we have this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And so they, they saw the Messiah, and that is true. We just believe it's the second coming of the Messiah that will cause world peace. And if someone is able to be the instrument by which world peace happens, he's going to have to be a ruler, right? He's going to have to be the king. Well, how is this king gonna show up? O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. And how will he come? Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, she didn't really know any of these two passages, which is fine. But I said, Look him up and tell me, would that be an indicator of when your Messiah comes, he needs to come in this way? That he's going to come on a donkey, humble, and coming in to that special place. And is there a time frame by which he he is supposed to come as based on what the Bible teaches? So as we think about the truth about Palm Sunday, what I want to just begin with is is we really believe the one who came in on Palm Sunday is the only one who could have been the Messiah because he's the only one who fit the time frame, and he is the one who uniquely came in exactly the way the Bible, the Old Testament, said it would happen. Now, when it did happen, and we believe it is true, what do we we learn, or what should we learn from that which we know a lot about or heard a lot about? What what should we glean from it? Well, I want to put it as simply as possible, then I want to kind of complicate it a little bit, but... Uh, I want to say something like this. What we learn about Palm Sunday is, is you, you see everyone experiencing it in such demonstrative ways. Uh, I would say th- the, here are two truths to hang your, hang your thoughts on this, this morning. It was a good day for some, and it was a bad days, bad day for many. It was a good day for some, and it was a bad day for many. And really, that's really the the story of all the Bible. Some people get it and some people don't. Now, God's heart passion, we're going to see His passion this morning about it. His heart passion is everyone would get it. But the reality is some get it and probably if you look at the indications of Scripture, many or most don't get it. The the path to, to Jesus is a straight and narrow way and few go on it. Now, there are going to be many who actually get on that, but there are so many who will not. And so in this, on this day in which there was so much celebration going on, there was also sorrow beneath the surface. In fact, you could, you could say at the foundational level, at Jesus' level, there, there was sorrow in the midst of the joy of what he saw about the people who got it in comparison to the people who didn't get it. For some, it was a good day, but for many, it was a bad day. Well, let's look at it as we just read through the account from Luke chapter 19. As I mentioned earlier, what's interesting about the, the account of the triumphal entry, and depending upon how you look at the last week, you have some obviously repetitive stories there and at the birth of Jesus. But even at the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus is only recorded in two of the Gospels. You know, we make a big deal about Christmas, probably as much as anything else. We like all the colors and we like all, the, all the, the fanfare in the home and all the gifts exchange and things like that. But it's only recorded in two of the gospel accounts. Obviously, the crucifixion of Jesus is in all four. But as you look at the, the things that Jesus did, really only one miracle is repeated in four gospels. That's the feeding of the 5,000. And when you think about this particular event, Jesus coming in, in, into the, the holy city, Jerusalem, it is in all four gospels. Now, if God says it once, w- it that's important. If he says it four times, you better know that's going to be on the test. So we better understand really what happened on that day because it prepares us for this holy week. Luke chapter 19, and uh, we'll just try to do a kind of a running commentary, put some things that might put a handle on it, and see what, what made it a good day for some and what made it a bad day for many. Luke chapter 19, verse 28, and he, this is in reference to Jesus, had said these things, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus was still the teacher. Everywhere he went, he was teaching. He had had a, a, a rather long trek in terms of what he was doing. And for those of you who like to hike, he had been in Jericho and was going up to, to uh, Mount of Olives, which is going to be about a 3,500-foot climb. He was going to take a stop a little bit in Bethany and Bethage, which is about two miles out of Jerusalem. And... Um, the trek from Jericho to um, Jerusalem area was about uh, 15 miles. So if you walk pretty fast, you can do it about seven or eight hours. So he, he, was, he was making his climb. And in the midst of not only teaching, he was also doing the miraculous. He had just healed two blind men. He had rescued the chief tackler, uh, this little man named Zacchaeus, and brought salvation to his home. And, and things were happening. People were gathering. In fact, he, he took a stop in Bethany, which is where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live. And as he was with them, the other accounts of the, of the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, uh, they make comment this way, that, that many came to see Jesus, but not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. And, and you're thinking about that. Why did they do that? Because just like us today, they wanted to know the truth about Jesus, they had, they 'd heard the story that Jesus had done the miraculous, but look at raising somebody from the dead did that really happen? I want to see the guy who was risen from the dead, and so they went to see Jesus and Lazarus. Now what they, when they came to the home, they realized this is this is a person who 's alive, and everyone 's saying that 's the one who was in the grave for four days, and the crowd began to swell even before Palm Sunday happened and, and really what you 're going to experience as we look through this is is that you had a tidal wave of people coming. From Bethany uh, into Jerusalem, and then you have the crowd in Jerusalem coming out, and these two tidal waves hit in the middle, and it was an explosion of people. And as you know, a, a crowd attracts energy, and this was this was an energized journey from one place to another. The crowd was was packed, and the crowd was sw- was swollen because it was Passover time, and Everyone had to be in Jerusalem at Passover time, so there's just people everywhere. And so Jesus begins Palm Sunday was by preparing people for Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry. And what we're going to see, we're going to initially see how God worked, how Jesus worked with individuals, or a couple people, and then how He worked with a crowd, or what happened with the crowd. The people had a good day, a couple of good uh, people had a good day were two unnamed apostles. Look at verse 29. When he, again, Jesus, approached Bethage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives is basically on a hill above Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples, which probably would have been the apostles, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, there as you enter. You will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say, The Lord has need of it. Now, Again, I'm just going to make some simple observations that just struck me as I was reading through the text. What we have here with people who had a good day is two unnamed apostles that that do exactly what Jesus told them. Now, again, I'm just thinking very simply here. Would you say you had a good day with Jesus if you did what Jesus told you to do? Yeah, wouldn't you? I mean, that's pretty simple. Now, some things that Jesus tells you to do is, is pretty straightforward, understandable, and you go, well, yeah, why wouldn't I? I mean, it would make sense that God wants, that Jesus wants me to love my wife, you know, love my kids. He wants me to be, he wants to be righteous. He wants me to tell the truth, all those kind of things. But sometimes Jesus might tell you to do some things that might be a little uncomfortable. For some of us, maybe the five for fives were a little bit uncomfortable. Pray five minutes a day for five people who, who don't come to church and, and go out and invite them. Um. And you say, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Think about the two disciples here. This is at the beginning of Palm Sunday. I want you to go into, this, into the city, and I want you to get this, this donkey. And I just want you to untie it and bring it to me. Now, I just want to say here, Jesus hasn't told you to do that. He hasn't told me to do that. But just kind of put it in your own f- framework here. What if Jesus told you and said, I want you to go next to somebody's house that you don't know, knock, not even knock on the door, but you see their car out in front? And I want you to hotwire it and just take off with it. I mean, that's basically what he was saying. Take that donkey. Don't even talk to him. Just untie it. And and, and Jesus, reading reading their minds, probably did this. He said, uh, oh, by the way, you're probably thinking what happens if they come out of the door before you get off. Uh, What am I supposed to tell them? Just tell them the Lord told you to take it. Well, I'm glad you gave me an answer to tell them, but I'm still uncomfortable, right? What if they aren't that impressed that I told them the Lord told them to take it? But what did they do? They simply did exactly what Jesus told them. Because they had come to that point. They learned, even, even, the, even the strange things that Jesus tells to do, I, I, I can trust that he will, he will make it happen in a good way. So they did it. But you can look at the other side of that equation. I, I, this is how my mind works. Well, how about if I was the person in the room seeing someone take my car? You know, <laughs> what, what, what would I do? It was my donkey, but what, what, would I, what would I do? Well, these people are unnamed as well, the, the unnamed people that... That were in that home when they took the co- the, the donkey, verse uh, verse thirty three, and as they were untying the colt, its owners, its owner said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" Again, I don't know how, in what tone of voice they said it, but what, what tone of voice would you say if someone was taken off of your car? Right? <laughs> what are you doing, taking my donkey? And, and the response was very simple. They said, "The Lord has need of it." Now. Again, this is interpretation here. This is not, this is not, this is exactly what it says, though I think this is what it means, is, and people have different opinions here, but some have said he, he arranged this all ahead of time. And that's quite possible. Uh, or what could have happened is that these people in that home, known sovereignly by Jesus, knew of him. Maybe had come to the point where they were trusting him and, and could recognize the apostles, the ones who were always with him, and when they saw them out in their driveway taking their donkey and asked them, what are you doing with my donkey? And they said, well, oh, the Lord has told us. They immediately re- realized, okay, th- this is not just two people taking off with my property. This is the Lord that wants what I have. And so I would say, as they look back, and I'm so glad I didn't, I didn't get upset. I, I'm so glad I didn't have a fight. Or I'm glad, so glad I didn't say no because I did something really simple on that day. Unknown people give what they have when they know it's for the Lord. Now, you can look at this if, if we want to kind of devotionalize it. When we think about our own lives of walking with Jesus, are we, are we quick to do what he tells us to do? And then secondly, are we willing to give what we have to him? I, I don't preach or teach a lot about giving. probably should do a lot more. But that's, that's a blessing. Can you look back at this? I'm sure they were so excited. That's, that's my donkey that Jesus is on. Can you, can you imagine that? They, they probably, when that donkey came home, they probably put it inside the house rather than outside the house. You know, Jesus sat on that donkey. And they were like, I'm so glad they came to my house to get my donkey. The privilege of giving what they have. That's why we give to the Lord. It's not because God's broke or the church is broke. It's because we give to the Lord and then we can dispense those resources to other people and, to, and preach the gospel to other people. They had a good day because they simply did what What Jesus told them to do, and they and then they realized that they could give what they had because it was the Lord who wanted it. But those are the individuals. Let's look at the crowds for a moment. Okay, this is the probably the familiar part of Palm Sunday, Uh, verse thirty-five. They they brought it to Jesus and they they threw their coats on the on the colt and and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the on the road. And and now the they it's not just these two unnamed apostles or these two unknown uh, people. Who gave up the donkey? Now it's the crowds. And, and, and as, as we look at that, there are other places where it, it talks about not only did they put their coats on the ground, but it, even as we have seen this morning, they began to put palm branches on the ground as well. well and they began to wave them. And, and what was that act doing? Well, you could put it this way the crowd began to honor Jesus as royalty or as, as a king and as Messiah. Uh, one, they just, they just recognized this is the one who is fulfilling the timetable. This is the one who is fulfilling the prophecy that he would come in as a king, humble and mounted on a lowly donkey. And they, they began to put the pieces together. And even if they didn't, and in fact, there's some indication they didn't put all these pieces together. They were just, they were just amazed at what Jesus had done. It says in, uh, you can look this up later or you want to put in your outline. John chapter 12, verse 16 says that even the disciples didn't, didn't get it until after he was glorified, until after Easter. But there was something about Jesus that said, he, he is like no one other. And maybe he can be the one who will bring peace into our life. So they threw down their coats. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never thrown down a coat you know, for someone to step on. I know, is it Sir Walter Scott did that for someone coming across the a puddle, but, you know, I, you know I, have, I haven't thrown down coats in front of people walking, but they, all of them did. But why do they do that? Because it was a symbol of seeing him as royally as king is, I'm willing to be under your feet, to be under your authority. And when you have kings, you have subjects to the king, and they're saying, I'm putting down my coat because I'm underneath you at this time. Why did they wave the palm branches or throw the palm branches on the ground? Because it was a symbol. I realize you have the power to rescue us and deliver us. It was a celebration of joy. A few hundred years ago, the Maccabeans had, had a revolt against uh, the, the, the Greeks, and, and they had recaptured the city of Jerusalem. And when they remented coins, they put palm branches on it because it reminded them of the celebration by God's hand to be rescued from those who had put them under their authority. And now they had recaptured the city that they so loved. And so they began proclaiming him as, as royalty, as king and Messiah. This was a good day for those who got it. We, we can't look into their heart, and we're going to see in a moment whether it was, it was true joy or a false joy or true faith or a false faith. But they were, they were proclaiming the good news. It goes on, and we have heard this sung already this morning, But we have, uh, after they they began to put the coats and other, the the gospel accounts, put down the palm branches. Verse 37, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They, and so they, they caught the moment, at least in their enthusiasm, and they began to, to proclaim out in a loud and joyful praise of Jesus for what he has done. They, they were amazing. They probably recounting in their own mind the most recent miracles of Jesus, healing the two blind men. Now, we know in the Old Testament that God did a lot of miraculous things. I mean, God has power both in the Old Testament and New Testament. What's interesting, as far as I can remember, there was never a time in the Old Testament where God brought sight to the blind. That was one miracle he chose not to do in the Old Testament. And Jesus did it multiple times because it pictured who he was. He was the one who came as light of the world. And they were amazed by it. They began to proclaim, save us, save us now. You are the one who can bring peace, world peace. And they began to praise him in such powerful ways. It was a good day on Palm Sunday for some they they were they were gathering and giving praise, and they were gathering and honoring him. But the truth is Jesus knew their hearts, and it 's not in this account, but in, in John it says that Jesus did the miraculous they, they did this because they remembered his miracles, but Jesus did miracles so that be, people can would be convinced that it is true that he was the Son of God, in John chapter twenty. Uh, 30 and 31, he did many signs uh, and even more than had been recorded so that people might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that in believing in him, you might have life in his name. But there are other times in in the Gospel of John particularly where, where Jesus would do the miraculous, and it would say that many believed in him. Many began to follow him, which is the word disciple. But it says he did not entrust himself to them because he knew it was in the heart of a man. Which means, as we think even, which appeared unanimously as being good, the entry into Jerusalem before he encounters the religious leaders. Everyone got it, it seemed. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew that some did not believe from the heart. They were just looking for a way out of their physical issues. And they didn't really want to deal with their issues of their heart. It was a good day for many. And you could see that in the, in the apostles trusting and simply saying, I'll do what you tell me to do, though it doesn't make sense to me, picking, taking someone's donkey without even asking them. It was shown the unknown people who came out, what are you doing? And they realized, oh, it's the Lord who wants it. Oh, if the Lord wants it, that trumps everything. The crowd began to honor him with demonstrative ways, with their coats and palm branches, that he's royalty is the Messiah. And then with loud and joyful praise, They see him as the one who who might be able to bring them peace. That was a good day. That was a good day for some. But the reality, and we'll go through this quickly, the reality was it was a a bad day for many. Let's look at just these last seven or eight verses. Verse 29, he says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out now i guess you could say that if anyone if anyone wanted to be a you know a party pooper it was the pharisees you know oh my you know everyone's having a great time everyone's singing everyone's proclaiming you as the, the answer to all life's problems and i want you got to you got you to gotta shut them up you got to tell them all to be quiet and the reason they, they went to Jesus, they realized they didn't have the power, even though they were the religious leaders, and they'd even threatened, we know this from the Gospel of John, that if anyone followed Jesus, they could be excommunicated from the synagogue. But that did not, that could, that did not control the crowd, and they were losing their power. And so they tell Jesus, you can't do this. Is, in a sense, they're saying, this is blasphemy. And Jesus said, if they, if they be quiet, these stones will cry out the truth about who I am. And so do we learn from this. Well, the people that had a bad day, this, the religious leaders despise and criticize Jesus for what they see and hear. And sometimes that's how we become sometimes. We become the, the critics of what God does or doesn't do. Isn't that true? There's all kinds of things I wish God would do that he doesn't do. But I, I'm not God and I'm, this whole universe is glad that I'm not. But he, he has his timetable and he will do things according to his plan. And they, of course, rejected him as who he is. But then it goes on and we see another group of people that Jesus begins to, to respond to. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, this is Jesus again, he saw the city and he, and he wept over it. Now again, Palm Sunday, when I normally think about Palm Sunday, and there's nothing wrong with thinking this way about Palm Sunday, it's, it's a time of great joy and celebration, loud and joyful praise, demonstrative worship to honor God by putting on your, your clothes. And they didn't have too many garments. This, this was not an extra piece of, of, of clothing in your, in, your, in your closet that you don't want to wear, and so you throw it down. They only had one garment, so they had to pick up what that, that donkey went over. But on Palm Sunday, it was also a day in which people caused Jesus to weep. Now, the favorite Bible verse of everyone who memorizes Scripture is in John chapter 11, and it's Jesus what? Wept. That's an easy one to remember, right? You know, there's, a, there's a, the Greek language is kind of a cultural language and has all kinds of nuances. When Jesus wept in, in John chapter 11, which is the account of Lazarus being um, uh, dying and then being put in a grave, and then Jesus comes late in, in accordance to the the minds of Mary and Martha, and he sees all the sorrow of, of people losing a loved one, which, which does bring sorrow. It says he wept, and it really it's a word to mean to, he wept quietly. But when he looked over Jerusalem, it says he agonized in his weeping. In his weeping. It, was, it was demonstrative sobbing. It was almost uncontrolled grief and sorrow. Because as sorrowful as the death of someone we care about, and our family's gone through that recently, the the greatest sorrow is not someone ending their life physically, but ending their life eternally, spiritually being forever from the presence of God. And this is what he saw when he saw the city. He says, he he wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, again, we're talking about this day, this is a bad day for, for many, even you. The things which make for peace, w- which seems to me to apply, this is you're proclaiming it is the, is the one who is the peacemaker. But you don't know what's going to have to happen for peace to occur. Even the disciples, every time he talked about him dying, where they said, "You're not going to do this. That's not going to happen. We'll prevent it from dying." You don't. You don't have to die. Now, f- for peace to happen, then peace has to be satisfied in the heart of God. That the that the sin that separates us from him has to be dealt with. All those animal sacrifices that they had gone through for centuries was leading up to this point where God would sacrifice himself and his son so that our sins could be forgiven. There is no going to be royal crown until there's a thorny crown. There isn't going to be any earthly kingdom until Jesus is king in our own lives. And he, he wept deeply over their misunderstanding, all that the prophets had said. Now, in your outlines, I, I put it this way. Their problem was that they had a wrong kingdom. Even as Jesus dealt with Pilate, and Pilate... You know, said, uh, oh, I hear you're king of the Jews. And, you know, you've said rightly. And then, and then well, why, why, why aren't you pulling it off? And he said, because this, this kingdom is not of this realm. Because unless we make peace with the one who is king in heaven, then we're not going to have the king on earth. They also had a, had a wrong solution. They, they thought that peace was going to come through power. But peace wasn't going to come through power. It was going to come through sacrifice. Isaiah 53 said that he, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, but the Lord laid the iniquity of us all on him. He would have to take our sin. And there was a wrong peace. There are a number of passages I put in the outline there. But just jumping up, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. It's not a worldly peace. And how do we get that peace? Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So often we want the peace of God without making peace with God. Until our sin has been covered by the blood of Christ, we'll never have peace in our life or around us in life until we have peace with Him. And then finally, the last two verses. For the days will come, after he just was so struck by their unwillingness to see peace, and now he says something you're never going to see in verse 42. He says, verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And really, saying that you haven't recognized the time when when the Messiah was to come. I'm going to give you an object lesson to show you that you have missed it. On this day in which you have proclaimed me as the Messiah, you have proclaimed me as a wrong Messiah because of a wrong kingdom. You have a wrong peace. You have a wrong solution. And what's going to happen just four decades approximately from this point in which Jesus was in Jerusalem, Titus of Rome would surround Jerusalem. And for 143 days, he would put the city at siege. They would consume all of their physical resources. They would begin to starve to death. And 600,000 Jews were to die during the siege of Rome. And then thousands upon thousands were in prison. And this beautiful city that they saw as the city of Zion, the holy city, would be destroyed. It was God's object lesson to say, look at This is not just missing some obscure question on the test. You need desperately know who is the Messiah and what the Messiah was to do so that your sins could be forgiven. The reality is physical judgment was coming soon to those in his crowd and eternal judgment to all like him. Because all are accountable to who was that person that was riding on that donkey, the foal of a mother donkey, in a humble way. Was he truly the Messiah? So what's the point of Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday, one way to look at is that was a day in which it was a good day for some, and it was a bad day for many. The ones that was a good day was the ones who responded to him in faith and did what he told them. Who even when they weren't uh, uh, weren't aware of what was happening, were willing to give when they realized it was the Lord who wanted it. The ones who truly praised God and honored him as as royalty and as the Messiah and, and expressed that loud and joyful praise. That was a good day. If it came from the heart. But it was a bad day. For those who despise and criticize what he did, who didn't understand that he came to die, and for those who didn't realize that judgment was coming. What kind of day is it for us? Is it a day when we're, we're just caught up in the praise of who God is, or is it a day when we simply go our own way, doing our own thing? Let's pray. My oh, Father, we, we are fully aware that we would have been just like the individuals and the masses in that crowd. We would have come with our own agenda, and we would have been looking for you to, to cure whatever disease we had, to solve any problem in our family, to deliver us from whatever oppression we were under. And yet the opportunity was presented even on that day with fulfillment of prophecy, with, with the obvious demonstration of the power of, of Jesus through the miraculous, the, the amazing truths that he taught to recognize this has to be the one who has promised to come. And I need to trust him no matter whether I fully understand everything. I need to trust him. And if I would pray for anyone here this morning that, that doesn't know Jesus as as he's claimed to be, the Lord and the Savior, the one who died on the cross for sins and rose again, that they would, they would trust him today, that they would make this a good day. And Father, we would, we would pray through the rest of our days that we would, we would help anyone who's having a bad day to find out who, who is the one that can deliver them from what makes everything senseless without a purpose and a plan that, that God has. As we leave this place this morning, we we invite all of us to just take the truth about who Jesus is and live it out. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this morning. And-